If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses working character actors. My name is Stephen Portia. My name is Andrew Carroll. Today we are discussing the one-of-a-kind, fearless, wonderful Jennifer Jason Lee. Andrew, run down their history. Uh, Jennifer Jason Lee was born in Hollywood, California in 1962. The daughter of an actor and screenwriter, she began acting at age nine and was taught by Lee Strasberg of the famous Method School. Despite his significant boost with Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Lee's early career was mostly spent playing prostitutes and rape victims. Awards came in the 90s for Last Exit to Brooklyn, Georgia and Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle. More doomed women followed in the 2000s, but she also worked with Charlie Kaufman and her then-husband Noah Baumbach during that period. Her best-known role came in 2015 as Daisy Domergu in Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. She was nominated for a Golden Globe and an Oscar for this role. Uh, She's kept up uh, careers in TV, film and stage. I think uh, before we go into Jennifer Jason Lee's career, we should probably talk about um, there may be a slight dip in audio quality in this episode because we are recording it in the midst of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. So we're it's an experiment. Yeah. And we hope it turns out okay. This is like back when we were uh, recording our Michael Shannon episode. Yeah, but even then we were in the same room. Like this is this is new yeah, territory. Yeah, all those halcyon days. Yeah, this is uh, dark territory under siege too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But, um, yeah, so you watched uh, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which is Jennifer Jason Lee's uh, breakthrough movie for the podcast. Am I correct? Yeah, and to quote yourself uh, when you were talking about Jurassic World a few episodes ago, that movie is sex as shite. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, it's crap. It's like it's like all those other um, teen movies, but just way worse, because it's, it's so full of, like, the tropes and cliches we're used to, but it doesn't have that John Hughes magic or anything on it. It's kind of like... 8th grade, but if all the 14-year-olds were played by 25-year-olds. <laughs> that sounds bad. But it's written by... It's based yeah, it on a book bad. by Cameron Crowe. And um, who directed Fast Times? Was it Amy Heckerling? Amy Heckerling, yeah. Yeah. It's got a reputation, right? It does, yeah. Yeah, but I feel like it's lasted for various reasons. But I think it's, like, definitely the worst of those kind of movies. movies like, uh, you know, The Breakfast Club... Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles are all like way, way above that. Like leagues ahead, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Um, it's just so full of like cliched characters, and it does treat like an abortion sub subplot quite sensitively. But it's just it's dread. Like Sean Penn is in it, and he's dreadful. <laughs> One of his worst roles, I'd say. And what about Jennifer Jason Leigh? He's like he's like totally Kyle from the Amanda Show. If anyone remembers that. <laughs> So what what does she play in the movie? She's the one of the main characters. She's Stacy Hamilton. She's a friend. I think she's a sophomore, so like a second year, I guess, in high school at Ridgemont High. I don't actually have a lot of notes in her performance because uh, the script does not do her any favors. Really, like her performance is it's fine, but it's nothing to write home about. There is a really creepy kind of first twenty minutes where she gives her number to a guy who is 26 at the pizza parlor she works at and she's 15 but she says she's 19 that's probably why it hasn't aged as well as the breakfast club but i think it may not be the brightest of starts for jennifer jason lee but i think what's great about her is that she realized early on that um 
she didn't want to play roles like that. Like um, I saw a couple of interviews with her where she says, um, you know, I'd much rather be in a movie that people have really strong feelings about than one that makes a hundred million dollars, uh, but you can't remember because it's just the same as all the others. And then I've seen other quotes where she's like, I could never play the ingenue or the girl next door, or the very successful young doctor. That would be a bore. And in the mainstream movies, the women's role is mostly just to prove that the leading man is heterosexual. And I'm not good at that. I'm not interested <laughs> in that. And she famously said she was in Backdraft, the Ron Howard, a firefighter movie. And she, I think she, yeah. it was one of her few roles where she played the wife. And she said that after yeah. reading the script, it's this is an IMDb trivia quote. Um, after reading the script for the movie Backdraft, Jennifer reportedly told its director Ron Howard that she wished she could play the fire because it was the most interesting part. So uh, even just after Fast Times at Ridgemont High, like she chooses The Hitcher, which is yeah, um, cra- yeah. A, a great movie, but a, a crazy movie where she gets um, it's torn in half. Did you, you've seen The Hitcher, right? It's a it's a pretty great movie. I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really really good. It's like I expected, kind of like kind of a crappy uh, exploitation kind of thriller but it has some real style to it and quite a bit of substance as well but uh, people really needed to sort out their hair back in the 80s <laughs> because uh, the main main character Jim is played by a guy called C. Thomas Howell and he has the worst mullet at the start of the movie and it just gets more blown out and frizzy as the movie goes on and as he's put through explosions and rainstorms and all kinds of shit so he's just f- f- completely frazzled by the end of it, and it's very, very hard to take uh, him ser- his character seriously, uh, even when he's faced up against uh, the hitchhiker John Ryder, who's played by a terrifying Rutger Hauer. Mm. Do you think everything mm. that happened to him in the movie he deserved because he had such a bad haircut? Well, yes, yes, I do. I do. Yeah, <laughs> I just kind of I'm realizing yeah. now because I'm going to talk about Flesh and Blood, which. Um... I loved, uh, quite frankly. But uh, Rutger Hauer mm. is in, Fl- in Flesh and Blood too, so it's weird that Jennifer Jason Leigh's um, rebounds after Fast Times at Ridgemont High and her kind of capitalizing on her success of that movie is yeah. um, two Rutger Hauer projects. Um, yeah, it's weird because she went, she did The Hitcher because she wanted to work with Rutger Hauer again. That's mad. And she just, she just doesn't have any scenes with him, I don't think. Or not that I remember, anyway. Hmm. Um, before I talk about Fashion Blood, I want to talk about its director, uh, Paul Verhoeven, for a bit. After having some um, successes in Holland with films like The Fourth Man and Spedders and Soldiers of Orange, he moved to Hollywood and made um, later quite an impact with like Robocop, Basic Instinct, Showgirls and Starship Troopers. And uh, I think those who've seen his movies know he's like a very maximalist guy. Uh, his movies yeah. have a lot of violence and sex, but while they give mainstream audiences what they want, he does smuggle in a lot of satire or transgressive themes and like religious imagery into his movies too making him uh one of these like a truly art house blockbuster filmmaker like um you sort of know when you're watching a poverhoven movie that's a poverhoven movie he's very he's like a kind of a scholarly type of person he's really interested in jesus he's one of the experts on jesus christ like the biggest experts in jesus christ in the world you hear all these stuff about him and then you watch showgirls and you're like oh this guy but um (laughs) he's a very interesting dude but flesh and blood is his first hollywood movie and i don't think it it totally blends those two seemingly warring things as well as his later works and uh, apparently flesh and blood 2 suffered from some studio interference but it's still pretty fantastic it's it's set in uh western europe in 1501 and it, it centers on a group of mercenaries who are hired by this rich guy to reclaim the town he's the rightful owner to telling them that they can loot anything they want in the town for 24 hours if they succeed 
and uh, they do, yeah. and they're led, led by this guy um, Martin, who's the soldier, and he's played by an incredible Rucker Hauer. However, their killing and raping infuriates the rich guy, who later betrays them, leaving the bandits with nothing. So, like, yeah. to gi- to give you a vibe of this movie, like, it opens with this jaunty music you typically hear in like Hollywood swashbucklers or like Excalibur or something like that. Accompanying it is like a man accidentally blown up by his fellow soldiers who just go. <laughs> like they're just loving it they're like <laughs> laughing it off and like immediately you start to see what Verhoeven's like interested in and it's it's that juxtaposition to the way this era is portrayed in movies to how it must have yeah. really been you know like yeah. this era of like constant violent coup de tats and like the bubonic plague you know like life <laughs> is really cheap and everyone's in it for themselves and pretty much every yeah. character in the movie is gross both in terms of how they act and look <laughs> and um basically lee enters the picture then is agnes who's this uh virginial soon-to-be daughter-in-law of the rich guy and as revenge against yeah. him martin and his gang kidnap her leaving her fiance he's probably the only heroic figure of the movie and is more modern he loves yeah. science although he's, he's still kind of a bit of a pill you know so you, you yeah, don't really yeah. like anyone in the movie but he he's trying to get her back and um yeah, it's really weird. From Agnes's introduction, we already know, like, she's not your typical maiden, because in Lee's first scene, she forces her maid, who's actually played by the actress who voiced Bart in The Simpsons, weirdly enough, Nancy Cartwright, <laughs> um, to have sex with a guy in front of her so that she can learn how to do it in a, in a pretty wild oh, scene. Oh, wow. Will you show me how it's done? They don't know how to go about it. Right here? Behind the bushes. I don't feel like doing it right now. I insist you feel like it right now. You're my maid. You'll do as I say. Go! She ends up being uh, taken by uh, Martin and um, in a pretty horrific scene is raped by him as all his cronies watch, which is uh, appropriately traumatizing to see. Yet while it's happening, she... And this is something that later on appears in Elle, Paul Perovitz's movie. She tries to take his power away in the situation like he tells her to scream and she says i'm not screaming i like it you think you're having sex with me i'm having sex with you which sort of makes martin oh, wow. comfortable and his girlfriend yeah who's also watching who's one of his like gang is watching the whole thing starts slagging him about it and yeah. it, it's very disarming and um but it's that kind of thing that uh verhoven is really interested in and like as i said like this exact scenario happens in l starring isabelle per um, a movie which I, th- I think better grapples with the subject matter, giving it the yeah. proper weight. But because um, after that point, and apparently Agnes wasn't originally going to be in the movie, but Orion Pictures, who distributed, wanted to have a female heroine or a female like love interest. So yeah. Agnes ends up falling for Martin in a way that's problematic, <laughs> given what he does yeah. to her. Yeah. He, even in, and he is comparatively probably the nicest and most civilized of his group, and de- later like defends her from the others. Um, yeah. So, but there is kind of like a logic missing to the character. Um, that said, though, even yeah. like Lee is amazing playing this person who who looks so innocent and wide eyed as this wealthy daughter of an aristocrat, yet does have a, a sort of mean, spoiled streak to her that comes out when she yeah. doesn't get her way, like that scene with the maid. And um, I think the more time she spends with Martin's crew, the more who are very id in nature, the more she gets to explore the kind of darker sides of her personality. 
Um, mm. I, I just think the movie has too much going on to give that plotline the proper weight it deserves. Because uh, L is would is just about that. <laughs> Whereas in this one, yeah, you have yeah. like there's this religious character who's just a psychopath and you have all the stuff about the bubonic plague and you have, um, there's like a love triangle going on. Like there's a scene in this movie where, um, Agnes meets her fiance and it's like a, yeah. a me cute and they really bond over each other. It's like an arranged marriage and they have their first kiss. And then it, the, it, the, it cuts to kind of, um, a wide shot and you see that their first kiss has taken place under a tree where two hanging decomposed corpses are <laughs> like it's it's insane this movie <laughs> like i think bob verhoeven described the movie as he wanted to make something that was stinking and um really <laughs> is but I, I think also i mentioned l before um which i think is a masterpiece which came out i think three years ago and um he yeah. had originally wanted to make that in hollywood but found no actress that would take the role and he said that the only person he thinks that would have would have been jennifer jason lee and um he's quoted as saying like she would have had absolutely no problem like she's extremely audacious uh she's an artistic presence yeah but we were looking for a big name so and he said like speaking more generally about roles for women in hollywood and those who turned down the role he said like i agree that there are not many female parts certainly not in american cinema it's weird that when there is one they lack the audacity to be controversial i hope all these actresses see the movie so it's kind of interesting that he thinks like <laughs> jennifer jason lee is one of these people who would get it you know and isn't afraid yeah, to yeah. sort of sacrifice her you know whatever or have an image even like she she's just willing to the more interesting the role is that she will take that and i think that's something you see later in her career when like in the hateful eight where she's playing like a really evil character yeah, the, one of the most evil uh, characters in tarantino's filmography yeah but with, with like just a reckless abandon and it's like no i'm gonna play the evil like i yeah it, the yeah. character is great you know i'm not i don't care about oh, oh i always have to be the hero did you watch single white female i didn't no um it's like a, one of those thrillers that came out in the 90s isn't it about like the the wronged woman yeah, or like, like the crazy woman. It, it was such a great time for movies. The nineties, you basic instinct, bad influence. Bad influence is so sleazy that James Spader is the good guy <laughs> in the movie. Cape Fear, the Scorsese movie, amazing. Last Seduction, oh, yeah. incredible movie. And um, I think Single White Female though is like in the higher echelon of those type of movies. And um, I think Jennifer Jason Lee in it, um, it's it's a very good role to showcase her many skills because. It, it's sort of transformative like at the beginning she's this very natural she's very natural as this sweet but shy and unconfident non-new yorker coming to live in the big apple for the first time and yeah you totally get why bridget fonda um would want jennifer jason lee as a roommate um, especially given how lonely she is after dumping her fiance yeah yeah however we soon come to learn that lee's character hetty is not all she seems and her twin sister died in an accident uh, which Hetty blames herself okay. for, leading her to become obsessed with finding someone else to be her twin. So she starts trying to okay. break up Fonda and Weber's characters who end up getting back together and uh, begins dressing and doing her hair like Fonda. We know she's crazy because she does things that are just unhinged, like in the script. But I think a lot of it is down to Lee's performance, which I think subtly signposts in the early sections all is not well. Like, um, it's, yeah. in, the w- it's yeah. in the way she nods her head up and down as she hears Weber's apology on an answering machine like nope 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 before deleting the message <laughs> or there's a scene where she um fonda's telling her she wants her out of the house because her and her fiance have gone back together and jennifer jason Lee just keeps cracking her knuckles in the scene and um Ooh. 
it's like it really amplifies what the plot of the film is already telling audiences and then um but also in, like in the later sections of the film where she's killing people and like dragging corpses around <laughs> or dressing like fonda and uh she shows up at her roommate's boyfriend's house and performs fellatio on him he only realizing oh. halfway through the act it's lee and not fonda oh dear. like it's really warped and like it's got almost verhoeven <laughs> but again like she's just throwing herself into it and she, it's it's very raw yeah. and very fearless yet it's it's to her great credit too that she's not just the terminator in the way that um <laughs> like i think isabelle Huppert, who i mentioned in l like her and greta where she's just like mowing down stephen ray or like syringing people yeah, in the neck, yeah. where in single white female where the movie goes to those like outdoor out there places like lee doesn't forget that Hetty is a person whose actions come from guilt and loneliness and that it's her way of coping with an immense trauma you know and during yeah. the finale there's a lot of moments where we see that Lee doesn't really have a plan and, and she's making things up as she's going along and she's acting out of compulsion rather than being some sort of like diabolical femme fatale and yeah. while the film's ending is mostly a happy one for Fonda's character it's also a tragedy for Lee's which I think gives it a bit yeah. more depth than similar movies of uh, this ilk you know yeah um yeah. you you checked out um Hootsucker proxy right i did yeah yeah i saw it, i think maybe two days before we were recording uh our episode on michelle yo and that made me want to do uh, an episode on jennifer jason lee uh, yeah she plays um amy archer the ace pulitzer prize winning reporter for the manhattan arbus uh she's undercover as uh the personal secretary to norville barnes who's tim robbins in who's uh, starts off as a lowly mailroom clerk at Hudsucker Industries before uh, being picked by uh, Paul Newman's character, the most evil industrialist I've ever seen in cinema, <laughs> to become president of Hudsucker Industries so that um, the board can keep the stock uh, instead of selling it off to the public. Fake! Huh? I tell you, the guy's a phony. Phony, huh? As a $3 bill. Says who? Says me, Amy Archer. Why is he an idea man? Because Hudsucker says he is. What are his ideas? Why won't they let anyone interview him? And just take a look at the mug on this guy. The jutting eyebrows, the simian forehead, the idiotic grin. Why, he has a face only a mother could love. She's that kind of um, brassy, self-confident, obsessive reporter in the style of, like, Hildy Johnson in His Girl Friday. Yes. Just kind of the strong female leads of uh, screwball comedies of the past. It's one of those movies where you like, where the Coen brothers watch lots of screwball comedies and say, "Oh, look, we we'd love to make a movie like that, but you know, we're not gonna we're not gonna just make up a make a straight up homage. We're gonna do it our own way, and our own way is gonna be very very different from uh, how those movies were made. And people will love it thirty years from now, but it's gonna make absolutely no money when it uh, first comes <laughs> exactly. out. I feel like with a lot of those screwball comedies the men were always assholes and then they always won at the end and it, they were always very like it, at the end everything they did was worth that see whereas yeah, I think yeah. um, what's kind of cool about the Hootsucker Proxy is that Tim Robbins really is an idiot and Jennifer Jason yeah. really is a genius who's really good at her job and um, yeah. like although he does accidentally invent the hula hoop I'm correct, if I'm correct that's true that. it's been yeah. a while since I've seen it yeah it's weird because um, in old screwball comedies like His Girl Friday like you said the men were like evil or whatever uh, or assholes and uh, the women were just kind of uh, despite you know being able to being on a verbal sparring level with the men they were yeah, always and they're kind of like pawns two steps in below. their plan like the male's plan yeah you know? like exactly. his girl friday is a fantastic movie but a lot of it is um 
Cary Grant sort of manipulating <laughs> Rosalind Russell. Yeah, you know? yeah, back into back into the job. And whereas uh, the Hudsucker Proxy is kind of in its screwball comedy parts is Jennifer Jason Lee doing her best to manipulate Norval Barnes into becoming a better person because she mm. sees what Hudsucker Industries is making him into, and she realizes that she's kind of she's had something missing, and it's basically been you know a fulfilling romance where their both partners are the equal rather than uh, because she's been good at everything her whole life. She's never had an equal. Whereas somehow this idiot is uh, her uh, romantic equal for some reason, but it just works. Yeah. It's just because they're good directors. Yeah. And the chemistry is really good. Yeah. And um, I think what's interesting about the um, Hoodsucker proxy is that it's probably the first time, at least in the movies that we're discussing that Jennifer Jason Lee does um a different kind of accent to her own because she has a very distinct a very snappy and brassy accent for sure yeah, yeah in in the movie she's doing this kind of midwestern atlantic kind of homage to the way i don't think it's a real accent but it's sort of the way um news reporters talked in 1930s Hollywood yeah, movies. yeah and yeah. it's a great emulation of that but i think jennifer jason lee in in general has this kind of slightly disaffected slightly nasal nasal sounds negative but I, I i don't think it is a negative thing i just think it's distinct voice and yeah i think yeah. whereas in flesh and blood it, it might it wasn't to me but it might be distracting to certain people to see her talking in this uh accent in a you know 15th century <laughs> set movie yeah i think it does make her really when she's playing very unusual like uh, three-dimensional fully rounded characters it it sort of gives her an edge in that because you're generally like oh that's a i've never heard anyone with this type of voice before yeah yeah you know i think an example of that is existence because um she's very um quiet and reserved in that uh, existence is this david cronenberg movie um which is is sort of a companion piece i'd say to videodrome where it except instead of being about the potential dangers of watching tv and uncensored material it's about video games and virtual reality and um it starts off the, the difference is the difference between those two movies is that uh, David Cronenberg at least understands what TV is, and he just <laughs> has no clue what video games are. Exactly, that's it. Yeah. It's it's kind of like, it looks, the video game consoles in the movie are kind of this mix between flesh and machine, and they look like kind of um, fleshy, tumorous asses. Yeah. And that, you would want to plug one of them directly into a hole in your bank. <laughs> like, yeah. No one would ever want to do I that. I would set those things on fire the first time yeah. I saw them. And, but uh, yeah, it the starts off. The ugliest things I've ever seen. <laughs> it, it, the movie starts off in the near future with um, Jennifer Jason Lee playing Allegra Geller, who's like the world's leader in biotechnological virtual reality games and. Yeah, as I said, instead of consoles, people plug in these fleshy machine pots and holes in their back and they sort of meld with your brain to create the game. And, um, you know, while running a demonstration over hot, new hotly anticipated game, Existence with a Z, um, there is an yeah. assassination attempt on her life with this uh, very cool gun made from bones and teeth. And she doesn't trust anyone and decides to go on the run with one of the game's publicists, Ted Peichel, played by, I think, yeah. a very funny Jude Law. Yeah, and like he's this guy who sort of fell into video game promoting, but has never played one of the virtual reality or the bio virtual reality games. It doesn't have a hold in his back. Yeah. So, her hearing this and needing to see if the prototype gamers and non gamers working together for once. <laughs> Do you think so? You don't think this is an accurate portrayal of um, where not games at all. Are it, feels, be in the it, looks, it feels like a feature length late season X Files episode. <laughs> never in my life would i want to connect my body to something 
uh, willingly that looks like a womb combined with an ass. <laughs> and also, I... the thing is, is that once they plug in, they're like, it doesn't trans- transport them to this like C- incredible, incredible looking CGI uh, world. Instead, it's just real life, but they're wearing different clothes. And everyone around them acts like, well, like a video game character, I guess. But because it's um, real or real life, it ve- it just kind of takes you out of the experience a little bit. Yeah, because I think what Cronenberg's trying to say is that the, well, the whole kind of plot of the movie sort of hinges on like what's real and what's not. So I think that's why all the levels of the video game look very similar to real life. Because at the end of it, you're like. Yeah. Like it literally ends, and you don't know whether it's in a video game or in real life. But it, yeah. it is just funny yeah. that the movie came out the same year as The Matrix, within like probably <laughs> the same few weeks. And The Matrix is this like expansive, futuristic world, and it is a little bit about like oh, what's real and what isn't. And um, Existence is like the complete opposite of that, where like it, it, even the video game, the virtual reality stuff in Existence is sort of shot like. Um, like a weird Ken Loach movie. <laughs> like it, it's very yeah. <laughs> just like it, it isn't even that like there's nothing about it apart from some of the Cronenbergian sort of flashy stuff that um feels yeah. like too disconnected from reality. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, yeah, it was kind of I think it was like kind of Cronenberg doing his best to work himself out of the body horror rut he dug himself into over the last like 25 years and try and do something different. And yeah. he uh, he eventually did that completely with um was it a history of violence? Mm. Yeah, it's. It, I think the yeah. 90s is a very weird time for Cronenberg because he's moving from the body horrors like The Fly and Rabbit and um, The Brood and, and stuff like that. And then in the... And I think all Cronenberg movies are about change. And I think uh, in yeah, the yeah. 2000s, he, it becomes more about psychological change like Eastern Promises and A Dangerous Method and A History of Violence. And I think the 90s is this weird time for him where he's sort of trying to do both and... Like with movies like um, there's the one with um, Ray Fiennes, which is a fantastic movie, Spider, and there is M Butterfly, which is a movie um, about Jeremy Irons falling in love with um, a trans woman, and there mm. is um, Existence, which is sort of both kind of psychological and physical, um, literally. Yeah, you know, the game works like that, where it is this kind of weird mix of like flesh that like plugs into your mind and kind of pulls whatever you're thinking about and makes the game out of that. Um, yeah. it's, it's just Cronenberg's one of these weird auteurs where it, the line between like what was like preoccupying him is so clear. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's really easy to see. But um, yeah, yeah. So basically, to see if like her new game pod was damaged when she was assassinated, Allegra and Ted decide to play Existence. And when they go into the game, it they kind of fall into a conspiracy and they're not really sure, you know, what is real and what isn't. And I think that Lee's character is very interesting because the movie's very weird and has this narrative that's constantly pulling the rug out from under viewers, like including in its last scene. Um, but Lee, yeah. Lee, Lee is, the, I think, the one who sort of grounds it a little bit where she's playing this person who... Um, changes over the course of the movie and but throughout the whole movie kind of feels consistent like she's at times very nerdy and withdrawn you know but she's also can be seductive and confident someone who's very intelligent but also doesn't really understand exactly what's happening at all times in her game yeah yeah just very emotionally kind of distant at the start of the movie 
Yeah, and like the fact that the movie is constantly switching between who she seems at the beginning to the character she plays in the game to an end twist regarding her true identity, like that could be frustrating. But I think in yeah. ex- existence's kind of structure helps overcome that. But I also think Lee, you know, by choosing to emphasize these distinct and often contrasting traits that are complex like a real person and also could apply to any of the personas she takes on in the movie i'll, I'll say without yeah. spoiling anything um I, th- I think ultimately like makes the movie succeed yeah and, yeah, and again like again it's like another role where she's like just um willing to do anything <laughs> like like it's, yeah. again, like fearless <laughs> like, in one scene like, she fingers jude law's back hole yeah because <laughs> To put the disgusting um, flesh butt into your back through a tube, but like the hole needs to be sort of like lubricated. So there's a lot of scenes of her just like yeah. licking her uh. finger or thing, and then Jude mm. Law seductively at one point licks her back hole, and um, it's 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 crazy. And Cronenberg is just he, like I love the guy. He's got a warped mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think also worth noting about um, Gemma Jason Lee and David Cronenberg is that she's going to be in Possessor this year, uh, the new movie from David's son, Brandon Cronenberg. And, um, oh, that, cool. That movie sounds really class. And she's playing a character yeah. called Girder. It's interesting that she's in that movie, that Andrea Riseborough is in that movie as well. Yes. And she's kind of Lee's kind of successor to this kind of fearless, anything goes uh, role taking throne. No, 100%. Yeah, I think yeah. for Jason Lee, Tilda Swinton. Andrew Riseborough all sort of in the same field where they're like, I'm down, I'm down for it. I'm down for anything. And I want to work with interesting directors. I watched uh, Margot at the web- wedding and I-, I won't spend too long talking about it. Um, I watched it because it was directed by Noah Baumbach, whose last two movies I absolutely adored, which were the Mayorwood stories mm. and uh, the much memed marriage story. But um, yeah. I, th- I thought it was also worth checking out because he was married to Lee and marriage story was inspired yeah. by their yeah, divorce. That's true. Wonder how that feels. <laughs> yeah, I know. Uh, apparently, uh, they're on. Apparently, okay he terms. showed it to her. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, she... he showed it to her, and she was like, "It's grand. It's fine." I think if you watch uh, Margot at the wedding, and it's made by a husband and his wife, and you're like, mm, "This this marriage," <laughs> I'm not too confident yeah. in it because it's a very dark movie. It's very. <laughs> it's about kind of like a doomed wedding, literally. And um, I guess yeah. it's not, it's not a movie I love. And like, while the characters in Marriage Stories and Marriage Story, you know, often do these unlikable things, I feel the strength yeah. of those movies is exploring what led them to do those actions, whether it be coming from this heavily dysfunctional family where the father was married four times and had a bunch of kids from different um, mothers, or being a married couple going through a divorce and having all their repressed anger over the years boiling to the surface on top of being manipulated by lawyers. Um, yeah, and those movies too have like heavy moments of drama, but they're also very witty and very light, a tone that I think Baumbach has really mastered as he's made more movies. Yet, uh, like, Mark with the Wedding feels a bit like an, an early misfire from him in that it's always yeah. very heavy and it, it, it consists solely of characters doing unlikable things, but never to the extent that I would have liked makes them interesting or empathetic or foregrounds why they do the things they do. Yeah. So, like, Lee plays Pauline, who's about to be married to Jack Black, and, um, Jack Black's playing this like failed musician who mostly lays about writing responses to album reviews. Something I related to. Um, <laughs> and her strange sister Margot, uh, who's played by Nicole Kidman, shows up a few days before the wedding uh, with the vague hope of making amends. Yet while they try to keep things amiable, they just can't stop being passive-aggressive to each other and basically doing shitty things. Becky and I talk about you. About what a monster you are. Is it because mom gave me the house? We've been talking about you. 
Becky can't stand you. What? Becky says you have borderline personality disorder. What are you saying? Can't I have anything? What was I thinking? I can't have anything. I let you in. God damn, dude, you're such an asshole. That's compelling to an extent, and the early passages of the movie are mysterious and engaging, but there's a point where all their backstabbing and, you know, bitchy, under-the-breath comments, uh, which Lee really relishes, it just grows a bit tiresome. And uh, yeah. also, also every character, aside from Jean Turturro, who plays Margot's husband, who she's separated from, who shows up for five minutes before being told to go away, like, he's nice, but <laughs> is so unlikable and has, like, very little redeeming qualities. And there's also a yeah. lot of like pointless tangents and like overwrought symbolism and the whole movie just winds up feeling as pompous and self-important as the characters it's portraying which yeah. is, you know is a, is a real shame <laughs> do you want to talk about the hateful eight yeah sure because i feel that year jennifer jason lee really um got a second wind because i think almost pretty much back to back was hateful eight and anomalisa it's weird because this was their oscar nominated role as daisy damargu who's like the violent violent and racist gang leader of the damargu gang and I'm just looking at the list here, and Alicia Vikander won for The Danish Girl, a movie no one remembers. But yeah, I'd, just watching uh, Jennifer Jason Lee, it's pretty rare that villains win Oscars, especially female villains. And Daisy Domergue is so evil and just kind of enscapulates the whole nihilistic uh, worldview of The Hateful Eight that I feel like she should have won for that movie. Yeah, well, at the beginning of the movie, basically Kurt Russell is like inflicting a lot of violence on Daisy Domergue. Yeah, like, he breaks her bit... nose and he breaks her teeth. Yeah, and then the movie you're watching it, and you're like, you feel so you know bad. Like you're like, surely this person who he's this yeah, woman yeah. who's doing it and to it can't really... be too bad. And it is a uh, great arc that she has, despite being a very easy to hate villain with basically no redeeming qualities. Um, in that she does almost get away with um, uh, all the crimes she committed. Yeah, I think just the strength of it is you kind of go from, you know, jeez, oh, I don't want to watch this whole movie of this guy. You think it's a movie about a bunch of guys who are beating up a woman and then you sort of realize that yeah. it's a movie about a woman who is like miles ahead in the in like the grand scheme of things of all these men. Like she is orchestrated yeah. the situation like so much so that they can't even comprehend what her like machinations are. Oh, you can kill us all. But you'll never spend a cent of that bounty money. And you'll never leave this mountain alive. Because when that snow melts, the rest of Jody's gang, all 15 of them that were waiting in Red Rock, are coming here. There's little moments of it where you do get... It's like she isn't just pure evil, like the bit where she's playing on the guitar. Yeah. And 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 you've got to to imagine as well that she must have lived a very tough life to, you know, like amongst these kind of like gangs of like thieves and killers that have made her so hardened and so bitter. It helps that she's ugly as sin as well. She's like <laughs> greasy hair, windburn, broken nose, broken teeth. It really helps to, you know, sell the image of ugly on the outside, ugly on the or ugly on the outside, ugly on the inside even. Yeah. And then there's that scene again with the guitar where Kurt Russell's character, John Ruth, grabs it and smashes it, but the guitar was worth like half a million dollars. And you what you get in the film is Jennifer Jason Lee's real reaction as he breaks it against a pillar. <laughs> it's very funny that's so good is that what hey whoa 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 and it's in character as well yeah, which i love yeah and it's it's just one of the a woman in a long line of women in quentin tarantino's movies that like have agency and um have yeah. are flawed and aren't just there to exist to prove that the 
male lead is heterosexual. Yeah, that's the thing I'm trying. I was trying to. I'm failing to articulate before. Like, even though the movie at the beginning of it, it seems like it, it's hinging on a lot of mistreatment and cruelty towards her. Like, she is the one in control. Yeah. It, she's like a, pr- a pure like femme fatale in this, um, you know, fantastic western. I think. Will we uh, go on to Anomalisa? Go for it. Yeah, I haven't seen yeah. Anomalisa. This is weird because it's that's actually the first uh, voice performance we've covered on the show, and um, that's probably because. A lot of why we like actors is just their delivery, but like their body language and their physicality. Yet, uh, yeah, you know, voice work is an art form too. And Lee, Lee is so good in Anomalisa that I felt it was uh, worth shouting out because uh, Anomalisa. I'll allow it. Oh, great, great. Uh, <laughs> Anomalisa is co-directed by um, Charlie Kaufman and is based on an audio play he did with um, the movies Three Stars, Lee, David Tulis, and Tom Noonan. And yeah, um, yeah so Anomalisa is this kind of stop motion, animated tragic comedy with puppets. Uh, Tulis plays um, a customer service expert going through a midlife crisis um, and this is kind of signified by him believing every person in the world looks the same and has the same voice so his child, wife, the people he interacts with on a daily basis all sound like character actor veteran Tom Noonan (laughs) however uh, on a work trip he discovers an anomaly this uh, insecure but sweet girl named Lisa who's voiced by Jennifer Jason Leigh who sounds totally different so he enters into this whirlwind romance with her and plans to leave his wife and family however uh, a type of tragedy is just around the corner oh my god hello oh do I look awful I was just taking my makeup off oh my god Ugh! don't don't look at me hello no you look lovely I can't believe you're in our room we came here from Akron just to hear you speak. I think Kaufman's great gift has always been thinking outside the box, like the surreal plot of his scripts for being John Malkovich, and, or the way he chose to adapt the Orchid Thief into adaptation, as we talked about in the Judy Greer episode. Like adaptation is this treatise on ad- ad- adapting works, you know. Yeah. And uh, I think Anomalisa would almost feel a bit derivative. Like it's got this like brooding male protagonist. It's very blackly funny, it's, but it's very misanthropic like a lot of his movies were not for the fact that um it's acted out by puppets and uh <laughs> the experimentation he and his co-director duke johnson do who I, I think has did a community animated episode if i'm correct yeah 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 the, um, um oh abed's uncontrollable christmas yeah great, there's a lot of experimentation with voices as well so it's not it's yeah. like puppets and voices coming together and i i think not only those elements like deepen the feeling of uh, alienation and boredom like the main character feels yeah it's it's gorgeous and just adds a whole like other layer of humor like every time tom noonan's uh, voice emerges from a different person's mouth just like makes me hell laughing <laughs> and um lee lee's great in the movie too like um obviously she's a coffin regular and was involved in the play of anomalisa so she was there from the very beginning but while she can do many different accents for Rose and is very versatile, as evident from the Hoodsucker Proxy and the Hateful Eight, we haven't talked in the Hateful Eight that she's doing this really southern, like, twang. Yeah, yeah, southern amazing. drow. Especially um, with her broken teeth. Yeah. Her, her natural voice is quite distinctive and is almost trademark, and it's it's slightly nasally, slightly disaffected, but never so that it's distracting, just unique. Yeah. So having someone like that counteract the British Tulis and Noonan's intense but sort of soft-spoken vocal work is really clever. Like, you definitely... Yeah. It feels like there is, like, three different audio layers. It, you can definitely tell, like, this play... This movie was originally, like, an hour play, like an hour experience. And uh, also, yeah, he yeah. sings in Anomalisa, and she does this really charming, <gasps> funny, emotional rendition of Cindy Lauper's Girls Just Want to Have Fun. So, uh, if that's not enough to recommend it, I don't know what is. Cool. 
Yeah. Well, let's move on to another movie with A in the title. Annihilation. Uh, yes, um, and an incredible movie. Yeah, she plays um, Dr. Ventress, who's a psychologist at Area X or at The Shimmer, depending on whether you've seen the movie or read the book. Uh, <laughs> and she's the leader of the 11th expedition into Area X or The Shimmer. Uh, she's one of the more interesting characters in that movie, I think, but slightly underdeveloped compared to uh, Lena, who's Natalie Portman's character, and the others. Uh, it's weird because I think she's the... Obviously, she's more of an enig- uh, an enigmatic character, and the motivation of her cancer diagnosis is a desire to explore the Shimmer. It's fine, but it feels it always feels like there could be more there. And I think a film following uh, Ventress's solo expedition after separating from the main group would be more interesting, darker, and somehow even more unprofitable film. Considering Annihilation was one of the biggest box office bombs of twenty eighteen. Yeah, um, well, it, it was yeah. a bit of a pain that it didn't come out in cinemas in certain countries, you know. Oh yeah, it would because it looks beautiful. It's such an amazing looking film, and it's such a shame that we didn't get to see that on a big screen. Mm. It's odd because she's she's got this really stoic demeanor the whole way through, um, like kind of even when she's the, their group is attacked by that horrible mutated zombie bear, she's the one that's always underreacting. And uh, again, when at the end of the movie where she becomes like the personification of, uh, briefly anyway, of the alien that has overtaken uh, Area X, she's just kind of like emotionless and kind of dead. Because in the book, it's like, oh, she's all she was, she was always part of Area X. Whereas in the movie, it never really gets a chance to explain why she's there or who she is. But it's still a great performance from Lee because of just how different the character is from everyone else in the movie. Yeah, it's a very icy performance from her. Like I feel, I feel like even if the bear had eaten her, the bear basically it kind of absorbs your DNA. So like the bear can like play the sounds of the person he it last ate screaming, and I feel like if yeah. it ate Jennifer Jason Leigh, it would just be like, anyway. <laughs> next yeah. you know like <laughs> she's very uh, icy. But i think she does fit in the vibe of annihilation which is this kind of like i, I it's a very sad movie and it, like yeah. and i think it's about sickness and about depression and i think everyone in the movie is sort of just um is looking to feel something because like at the beginning yeah. Natalie portman has lost her husband and you know, and then you you know Jennifer Jason Lee is like is terminally ill, and like you learn more yeah. about all these other characters. Like I think um, one of the characters is um, depression. Yeah. One of the yeah. other parts of the crew, and it's it's and it's it's a very existential movie about like is humanity even worth saving? And yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think Lee's performance is very good at um just getting the vibe of the movie correct. Like it it just it feels right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and right. I th- and I think that performances are a lot like that, where if a, a performance is sort of sticking out and is just making you maybe a little too aware of the performance, unless it's like a, a lead, like superstar. Yeah, I think sometimes that can be that's a bad sign. Like you, you should really kind of meld with your movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think um, the last thing I want to talk about is Good Time. Good Time is a great example of Jennifer Jason Lee seeking out interesting directors to work with because she's a small role in the Safdie Brothers' modern classic Good Time, which stars Robert Pattinson as someone who, after his autistic brother is pinched during a robbery he planned, must garner the money over one night to bail him out of jail, something which leads him on this uh, wild odyssey throughout New York. And uh, Lee plays Corey, who is the older girlfriend to Pattinson's Connie, 
and uh, it's a very small mm. role um he she must be in it for like 10 minutes he goes to her when he's looking for money and she lives with her mother and has a bit of relationship with her and pretty soon we realize yeah. from Corey's interactions with her mom that she has mental health issues and that pattinson dating her may not be a romantic thing but more him preying on someone vulnerable and hustling her yeah when she can't get him the money like they 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 show up at the bail bondsman and her mom has cancelled her credit cards like connie just abandons her and she's like not in the movie again Jesus. and um but she leaves an impression because when she shows up her and panson's dynamic is weird and mysterious but the more you spend time with her you realize like you know who this person is like you've seen them on the street yeah. kind of making a scene someone who maybe tragically hasn't gotten the capability hasn't got the capability to look after herself or get a job and yeah. can fall victim to petty criminals like connie who can sense her loneliness yeah and uh like not only does her and pattinson scene set up this character and establish a pattern of him kind of noticing and using people's weaknesses to get what he wants which he does throughout the movie but um lee's key scene sees her acting alongside pattinson as well as two real bail bondsmen the the safety brothers if you've seen um uncut gems they like using their yeah. professional actors to make their movies feel more authentic and uh if you didn't know lee you'd think she was an actor you she wasn't an actor but a real person uh the safety saw and yeah. pulled off the streets like she's that authentic so you know, go watch Good Time if you haven't seen it. It's got such crazy energy. <laughs> Have a good time. It's good. It's a great. It's a great time. If you liked Uncle Gems <laughs> from earlier in the year, the Safety Brothers follow up to Good Time. Go check out Good Time and also Heaven Knows What and other movies of theirs, which is fantastic too. And then um, yeah, late, later on in the year, as I mentioned, Jennifer Jason Lee, she's got Possessor coming out, and then she's also in The Woman in the Window, which I'm curious about the new Joe Wright movie, which sort of looks like a one of those '90s psycho thrillers but she she's had such a very like a very career like even now she's in netflix series the netflix series atypical which our wonderful editor and social media person charlene fernandez says is great um i haven't even talked about her in shortcuts or road to perdition or in jane campion's phenomenally underrated movie in the cut or her and tim roth playing married hitmen duo in twin peaks the return (laughs) her role in one of the best stephen king adaptations dolores claiborne a great feminist melodrama about a mother and daughter and how their lives are affected by the um abusive male in their lives uh i maybe i'm saying this because i miss social interaction and talking to people but if this show ever gets to a certain level i would i'd like to host live screenings of movies with maybe episodes recorded <laughs> live after them so maybe if we've missed something here with jennifer jason lee there's a chance we could revisit those movies at a later point through that uh but if that were to happen though we'd need lots more listens and loads of five-star reviews though so you know, yeah rate and review wherever you get podcasts preferably itunes please do follow us on twitter and i know that face p1 you can also follow us on instagram now um because our lovely editor shani fernandez along with um anaisa bui have set up this great instagram account because the show is about movies instagram is a great medium for that because it's very visual so there's a lot of um funny memes clips from the movies that we talked about interesting trailers for the show so i'd recommend checking that out uh, I, if you type in i know that face i'm sure you'll see it send us an email i know that face pod at gmail.com if you'd like to be on the show yeah andrew where can people find more of your work you can find me at the headstuff gaming section where we write about what we play why we play and how we play and you can find me at um headstuff and hot press for the time being uh on that note see you later cinephiles see ya bye bye this has been a production of the headstuff podcast network If you want to support this podcast and get a full ad-free episode, sign up to Headstuff Plus. 